All right. I want to begin my message this morning by reading to you something from Pilgrim's Progress. I think this little section might prove helpful in our study of 1 Thessalonians 4 today. And just if you're not aware of Pilgrim's Progress and the narrative of what's going on here, I'll give you a few things to kind of clue you in. In this section I'm going to read from, we have the main character whose name is Christian, and he's with his friend named Hopeful. And at this point in the story, they're trapped in a dungeon in Doubting Castle. There, they're guarded by the giant of despair. And what happens here in this dungeon, I think, is most instructive for us, not only in regard to doubt and despair, but in regard also to the topics that we're going to look at in 1 Thessalonians 4 today. And those topics are sexual sanctification and brotherly love. I want you to listen as I read this to you in just a moment to these two men and what they're discussing and what they discovered while in the midst of this dungeon. And in this section, Christian and Hopeful are are finally going to find a way of escape. In the dungeon, Christian says to Hopeful, What a fool I have been to lie like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called Promise. That will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news. My good brother, do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key from his chest and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. As he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease so that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out. Now, I want to put before you today that I believe that we have just such a key before us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12, regarding freedom from sexual sin and selfishness. I think that we have the key that will set us free from slavery to these things. So today, I want to talk to you about that key, the key that unlocks the door of sanctification, and I want to read to you what the passage here says in chapter 4, verse 1, down to verse 12. We'll mainly look at verses 9 through 12, but let's begin with the context. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that 
you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is an interesting text to me because we have exhortation and instruction at the beginning. We have exhortation and instruction here at the end of what I read. But right slap dab in the middle, we have edification. That's important. I think that the middle is the key to doing what's above it and what's below it. I think it's key for us to understand that. The key that opens the door of sexual and relational sanctification, I believe, is found in verse 9. See, saints, our, our sanctification, according to the Apostle Paul here and in other places, our sanctification is the result of God's love. His love for his son and the work that his son accomplished in uniting us to himself at the cross. See, God's love for Christ is what now assures us that the work he began in us will be brought to completion because Christ's work and Christ's work alone satisfied God's legal demands for us and justified us in God's presence to make us acceptable to him. That drives our sanctification when we consider this. I am not having to perfect myself. It's complete in Christ. And God is satisfied with the work of his son, so much so that if I'm in Christ, I have that satisfaction imputed to me by his accomplishments. This is the hope that I believe should now drive us from sin and toward holiness when we consider this. We are already, according to God's word, you see it consistently in Paul's writings, we are already declared just in God's sight. And we are already promised glorification because we are saved for that purpose. We are saved that so we will eternally magnify the sufficiency of Jesus's atonement. And, and that atonement fully conquered everything that stands in front of us that we cannot conquer in and of ourselves. His atonement conquered sin's power over us. His atonement conquered the penalty of sin that we deserve for us. And his victory, his conquering of this and his atonement promises us the presence of sin being eradicated from us one day in glory. But progressive sanctification is just a slice of what we're going to get in the future. But God loves us too much to leave us without a taste. He says, this is what you're going to end up getting because Christ has brought you to a place that this sin one day will be completely eradicated from you. It will no longer be a struggle for you. And so he wants us in progressive sanctification to get a foretaste of the joy that awaits us when we will be fully conformed to Christ's image and able to reveal his glory forever. That's why he calls us in this passage to pursue sanctification. It's for the joy that awaits us. We have joy in this hope in the future, but he wants us to get a taste of it now on earth. And in particularly in the fellowship of the saints. Keep that in mind as, as we read the passage and go through it this morning. Paul, Paul's giving instructions here and exhortations for a very specific reason. He's not trying to bind them with legalism. He's not trying to make them have to suffer to go through this Christian life. He's, he's giving these exhortations and instructions to protect and encourage the joy of this fledgling church, this new church plant. So, so he begins, I think, in verse 9 to, to do that, to, to give them exhortation and edification as well. He, he sings over them in chapter 1. He sings over their praises in chapter 1. He, he tells them, look, I already see the work of faith in you. I see your steadfast hope. I, I see your labor of love. 
I mean, he's, he's, he's wanting to make sure I'm giving you some hard things to consider. Abstain from sexual immorality. You need to pursue brotherly love actively. But in the middle, you can do it because, look, you're already doing it. I see it. It just needs to go a little further for you to enjoy the blessings of it more and more. He's saying to this healthy church plant, you're doing good, but you need to consider excelling more and more for the joy that's set before you in pursuing holiness. They were doing good as a church plant. They were healthy, but they weren't perfect. There are no perfect church plants or churches in general, because every new or old church is filled with forgiven sinners who are still carrying around this carcass of death that still fights against the spirit daily. So here in Thessalonica, we see what it looks like on the surface, a very faithful, very hope filled, a very loving church. But Paul's telling us here, as good as that is, it's not perfect. That's coming in, in glory. But you should want the coming glory now in your fellowship. It's not a perfect church and ours is not a perfect church. This church and our church alike needs basic instructions on earth on how to glorify Christ. I think that's what we have in this section. And I think what the Holy Spirit does through the Apostle Paul here in writing this, he's he's basically giving us a, a great hope and a great blessing through these instructions that we can look to when we are struggling as Christians, trying to pursue one another in brotherly love or abstaining from sexual sin. When you look at the text, I mean, it seems pretty simple. Abstain from sexual immorality. Love one another. That's pretty basic elementary Christian truth, isn't it? It is. But I really believe, folks, that our greatest failures as Christians come when we forget the elementary truths of our faith and assume that we're beyond them. Keep that in mind as we look at this, because... The sins that Paul addresses here, though they look elementary and they're obviously wrong, we need to understand that these were detrimental to the health of this church. If you think that you're above falling into these, you're going to wake up one day like Christian and hopeful and find yourself in the dungeon that you have the key to get out of. But you've got to remember this key is in your pocket. Don't assume that you're not able to fall into these sins because you are. If you keep the key in your hand, you may be prevented from going there. I think that's what Paul wants us to see, even though these are very elementary and obvious sins, that the sins of sexual sin and selfishness. Well, isn't that the heart of really selfishness is the heart of all sins, is it not? But both of these sins ultimately tell us something about our true belief in God. When we fall into sexual sin or selfish behavior, what we're saying is we're just dissatisfied with God. That's what we're saying. We're saying, no, you're not powerful enough. You're not big enough to stop me, so I can't help myself. And and so I'm going to do this my way. We don't say it like that, but that's the truth. That's what drives our disobedience. All of our disobedience really comes down to this. We don't want to wait on God's promises or provisions in Christ. So we seek to fulfill our desires, our fleshly appetites, apart from him, because we think that he's, he's, he's too harsh. We judge God as being too harsh. He, he's too slow. He, he's really not even concerned. They're just small sins. It's no big deal. 
But saints, I'm here to tell you this morning that God is concerned and it is a big deal. There are no small sins against a holy and righteous God. And he has already acted on behalf of sinners like us to deal with those sins seriously at the cross. Our sins brought about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy and undefiled, righteous in all his ways. That's what our sins led to. Not one sin in our life was overlooked by our just and holy God. Someone has to die for those sins. It will either be you or it will fall upon Christ in your stead at the cross. Now, when Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica, he's writing to a culture that's much like ours. And, and they did not want to acknowledge the, the gravity of the sin in their camp because this was the sin of the culture. The sin was selfishness. The sin was sexual flaunting of your desires. That was acceptable in Thessalonica. And sadly, that's acceptable in America, is it not? Our culture is not that much different than those of the Thessalonians. Our culture, like the Thessalonians, flaunts and praises the sins of sexual immorality and self-promotion. We call it self-esteem, right? We we give a prettier name to it. Self-exaltation. They're listed here. When you see this, what he's going to say is, I'm going to tell you in a positive way, you've got a negative problem that needs to be dealt with. You're being selfish. You're not actually expressing brotherly love. And it needs to be dealt with by looking to what God's provided for you. Look to the key, which is the love of God given to us in Christ. Even though this culture and the culture in Thessalonica, they flaunt the sins that we see in these texts being corrected, we need to understand and keep in mind how much God hates them. God hated these sins so much so that he sent Christ to show us how offensive they were in his holy sight. When you think about Jesus dying on the cross, I I really pray, I really hope that you do not think of Jesus as just dying on a cross for a mass of humanity and just this generic sin curse. Listen, when Jesus was on the cross, if you are a believer in him today, he was being punished for every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. Every private thought, every selfish act, they fell upon him and he was cursed by God in your stead. God takes our sins seriously. That may seem elementary to us. But I think it's important for us to keep in mind when we consider what he's dealing with here in this text. When you keep in mind that God's calling us in this text to walk and please God more and more. He's telling us to do that because of how much love he has already given to us at the cross in Christ. I think that that elementary truth is the key to our sanctification. That's why I think the Apostle Paul begins with a word of edification here in verses 9 and 10. Let's look at that again. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now, when you read Second Thessalonians, you begin to see why he says this. There were some men there that were not doing what he's going to instruct us to do in verse 11. There were some men there that were causing problems in the church, opposition. And he's saying, look, if you have been taught by God, apart from the Apostle Paul, this is something that happens at regeneration. 
If you've been taught by God's love and God's love is in you, it's going to change the way you live your Christian life and relate to brothers and sisters. I think this is a fascinating text because it's instructive to us, I think, personally and for me pastorally, because he does do this, gives us this beautiful example of how to really instruct and correct and edify all in one text. He's, he's balancing things out well. But he's saying, if you want to understand sanctification, you need to understand the love of God. How much he has loved you, what he's taught you. And he goes on in verse 10, you know, to say, look, you are obviously loving God. God's taught you this. And the love of God is working in you and through you. And it's going to the churches of Macedonia. However, you need to do it more and more. I think the however or the do it more and more part is because it's not happening personally and locally as it ought. So you're doing a great job going out, helping others. But you've got some guys causing problems in the middle here in this local church. We need to deal with that. We need to make sure that we have the love of God constraining us, directing us. And so that's what he does here. He he begins in verses 1 to 8, exhorting and obviously correcting an issue that was going on in the church. There was sexual immorality happening because of their acceptance of it in the culture. And then right after he he gives them this exhortation and correction, he encourages them by pointing them to God's work. God is giving you this new heart that will love others. Saints, this is what keeps you from sexual immorality. If you have been given the love of God, you see the people of God that he has created, you will not harm them by your sinful pleasure and lust. The love of God is what restrains us from doing harm to others in the body and in our minds sexually. I think it's interesting that this is wisely sandwiched here between these two exhortations. He didn't want them to lose hope because no one likes correction, right? I don't. I don't like discipline. It hurts at the moment, but it's going to produce a good work. I know that, but I don't like it at the moment. He knows they don't like that, but he says, look, don't give up hope. I see God working in you already, but there's still something lacking. He says, look, there's there's evidence that you're doing this elsewhere, but it needs to be done here locally better. They needed to excel, he says, at brotherly love. The word is Philadelphia, right? And, And that word originally meant... Affection for blood relatives. That's the only thing it meant in the secular culture. But in the New Testament, it always refers to something different. Christian affection, because we are now united by one blood in Christ, right? United in Christ's blood. And he wants them to know that the kind of love that they are showing toward others is a direct result of God's love, his agape, that's at work in them. So in verse 9, he says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Taught by God is the word theodoktos. Literally, God taught. You have been taught by God to love. He's saying here, this is the key, folks. This is the key that unlocks the door of sin's dungeon and empowers us to walk in brotherly love and holiness. And the key is the love of God that was placed in our hearts at regeneration. That love at regeneration was richly poured into our hearts 
And that love is the key that opens up the power to pursue sanctification. Out of the love that we've been given, out of the love that we now have for Jesus, we will not continue in sin without repentance. We hate those things that used to bind us and trap us. Because of Christ, we've been set free from those things. We no longer want to live in them. That's the kind of love that God says in 2 Corinthians should constrain us or control us as Christians if we belong to him. Go over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Here's why he died for us. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. That puts to death selfishness. But rather to live, it says in verse 15, for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ that we have been given through his work at the cross. That is now what controls and constrains us. Now, this exhortation to the Corinthians was well needed. If you know anything about Corinth, it was a wretched place to live. All right. And the church was not much better than the culture. This exhortation was needed because they were a very selfish people. But this exhortation was not only needed at Corinth, it's needed in Ada. And the instructions in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12 were needed there, but they're also needed here. Because every church needs practical instructions in sanctifications. And we, sanctification, and we need to know that these, these instructions flow out of God's love for us. It's good for us. The instructions here that we're going to look at in verse 11 and 12, they are set forth positively to correct some relational issues in the church that had crept in. So let's look at that in verse 11. Here the Apostle Paul reveals what the key is meant to unlock that we've been given. He reveals it by giving us practical instructions. Actually, I need to get to verse 11. He says, I want you to do this more and more in verse 10. Then in verse 11, he says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, if you read that at face value, sometimes you're just not quite sure why that's all that important. But if you know a little bit of the background, it sort of opens up the meaning here a little clearer to you. If you know what's going on in this church and what they were dealing with later in Second Thessalonians, it's going to be very obvious to you why this is important. And here the apostle tells us that the key of God's love is going to be the thing that's going to set us free from the bondage of selfishness that's hurting our brothers and keeping us from brotherly love. It seems, if you know anything about this, this church at the time, it seems that there were some in the church there that were trying to justify their sins because of social acceptance, as I said. But there were also some here, I think that he's addressing more specifically in 9 through 12, that were prone to speculation. And it was an eschatological issue on some level. But it was more than that. Eschatology was hijacked for the sake of self-promotion. All right. But there were some there prone to speculation and they sought to stir up trouble and confusion. They were prone to voice their theological opinions about eschatology to elevate themselves. They were prone to stir up strife as busybodies. 
They are prone to mooch off the saints to support themselves by trying to justify this activity they were doing as necessary to keep the church on course because the Apostle Paul has let down the guard. He's failed in his leadership. And they begin to prey on others through this kind of manipulation, saying, look, we've got to help out Paul. He didn't do enough. He left it kind of fuzzy around the edges. We're going to clear it up for you. And so you need to support us so that we can really dedicate ourselves more so than Paul was to you through this financial support. And he's saying this is a, this is a bad thing going on in this church. So he's going to give some corrections for that. Now, all these actions, if you put them all together, you can see the heart of it. It's selfishness. These actions were harming others for the sake of their own gain. And Paul's making it very clear to us, I think, in verse 9 and then in verses 11 and 12, that this should not be the pattern of one who has been taught by God. Go to 1 John quickly. 1 John 4. This should be what it looks like if you've been taught by God. This should be the evidence of your faith in God. 4. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And he's the kind of life he wants us to live, actually, as you see this progress. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, full satisfaction, full appeasing offering for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, matured in us, manifest in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We are taught by God, taught by God, the Holy Spirit upon upon regeneration. And he's telling us here in first Thessalonians that if the love of God and the spirit of God dwells in you, then you ought to aspire to express brotherly love. But if you don't. Well, that might reveal something, too. If this is not the aspirations of your heart, I don't know that you can claim to be born of God. Not the perfection of your life, but the aspiration of your heart. The things that we see in verse 11 in particular. But even going back to verse 1. In 1 to 8, we're told that the love of God in Christ should cause us to abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because we're hurting others. We're disobeying God. We are not to defraud by taking something from others by deceit for personal gain. They were doing that in their relationships. It's possible that there were people there trying to commit adultery with other members of the church. That's the kind of sin and sexual sin in general, the kind of sin that enslaves your soul and robs from others. It's wretchedness. But he's saying if God's love controls us, Christ will unlock the door of sexual purity for us. And give us restraint. Christ's love will unlock how we should view our sexual sins properly. Confessing them to God for what they are. An offense to Him. All sin is against God. No matter how small you think it is or how private. Every sin we commit is against the holy and righteous God. And He's given us His love to help constrain us from continuing in it. 
His love is what constrains sexual immorality and the abuse of others for the sake of our own sinful pleasures. And I think this is why. It's because now in Christ, by the love of God that's been poured out in us, we recognize those sinful passions as the very things that drove the nails into Christ's sinless body on the cross. Now go down to verse 11. In verse 11a, we're going to break it up. We are told that the love of God should cause us to aspire to live quietly. Now, that seems very odd. We don't understand that by just an English reading. You have to really pry into the Greek a little bit. But basically what he's saying here is we are not negatively. We are not to speak out inappropriately to stir up unrest or disunity in the body of Christ. That's what was going on. Why? Why shouldn't we do that? Because we now in Christ know that his love has been given to us to set us free from our slavery to our tongues. Christ's love now unlocks the door for us to express peace and gentleness with our lips. Christ's love will lead us to speak the truth in love, to cultivate peace in the body of Christ, not division, not unrest. Christ's love will also constrain self-promoting Words that lead to disunity in the body of Christ. It does that because now in Christ and his love poured out in our hearts, we can recognize that our sinful pride and divisive words led Christ to a cross to cry out in our place under God's wrath. That's what unlocks us from the slavery to our mouth. It's the love of God that we've been given in Christ. Verse 11b. Here we are told to mind your own affairs, mind your own business, right? That's kind of what he's saying. Basically, he is saying the love of God has been given to you in Christ and has been taught you by God and the spirit dwells in you. You are no longer to be busybodies going from house to house to dispute and to cause division and manipulate your brothers and sisters in Christ. Second Timothy chapter three addresses people who do that very seriously. Rather than that, he's telling us if you are loved by God and the love of God is constraining you because you're in Christ, quite the opposite will be true of you. If he is in your heart, he is in your mind, he's guiding your actions as well as your tongue. Christ's love will unlock the door, not for divisiveness, not for being a busybody, not for causing disputes, but he'll open the door of edification and self-control and he will restrain us, constrain us from disputing and division. Listen, I am not the Holy Spirit. If I believe that for one minute that I had to keep all of you and myself in line all the time, I would give up. We have been given the spirit of God who will bring conviction to the person who is born of God. And I'm confident of that. Where there is no conviction, there is no regeneration. The love of Christ will constrain disputing and division. And I think it's because of the love that we've been given, the love that we've been taught by. We now see our sinful acts of division and disputing and manipulation are what crushed the life out of Christ to unite us to one another in the body. Not to hack it up like a butcher by getting involved in other people's business. You know, sometimes we read these these passages here and we just act like, oh, he's kind of given us some like. Helpful living hints, you know, I mean, this is good for you to have a happy life. That's not what he's doing. He is correcting a serious 
error in their thinking. And he's pointing them back to God's love is what's going to guide you into brotherly love. You don't want to be caught up in the flesh's desires here. Verse 11c. He ends here with saying we are told to work with our own hands. Meaning we are not to leech off of others to support ourselves when we can work. But we choose instead of working, we choose to waste our time chasing theological windmills to elevate our spiritual importance in the sight of others. Instead of doing that, he says this. That Christ's love will unlock the door of selflessness and compassion for the truly needy. It will cause us to work with our own hands in order to magnify Christ's love by serving others who have a real need of support. So he's saying in a negative way, Christ's love will constrain the selfishness and laziness that drains and, and defrauds other Christians for your own advantage. Because now you can see that your sinful self-preservation and selfishness is what laid Christ in the tomb because of your evil works. Church, God has given us the key to set us free from relational sin here. Christ's love can truly do what we can never do in and of ourselves. Christ's love, the love of God that has been poured out in us richly in Christ, that love will cause us to hate our sins that hurt others and will cause us to long for relational holiness. And and if we don't have that, we're going to find ourselves trapped in this dungeon of selfishness forever. But if you've been given the key, if you've been given the promise that God is most satisfied in the work of his son and in him, I've been given love beyond measure. Then I can now long to do what's right toward those who I've hurt. I can now long to connect with those who are separated. I can now hate the things that cause others pain. There's nothing else that can do that. Legalism can't do it. Tradition can't do it. Only the love of God can do this. If you're not hating your sins against others and longing for relational holiness, it may mean that you are not truly born again. Because this is the work of God taught to us directly at conversion. Listen, the atonement, God's gift to us of the forgiveness of sins in Christ, we rejoice in that. But we've got to look past our immediate rejoicing and think about what's the future joy supposed to be about. And so that one day we'll gather around the throne of God and behold the lamb that was slain. And we will testify, this is your work. This is the only way I can be here. I stand here in Christ. We will forever glorify the Lamb of God that was slain in our place. And he's telling us, I think, throughout Scripture, this is what will drive you to holiness practically today. Think about this. Don't you want to rejoice in it now? Well, you can. You've got the key. It's been given to you. I know we don't always rejoice in this because we do struggle To walk in holiness as Christians. We struggle to walk as we ought or even as we want at times. But let me say this. When a true child of God fails, falls short, sins, they will not excuse it. The key of God's love will keep them from giving up, 
giving in, excusing it, or living in that sin because of the promises that we have in God's word. And the promise in particular that I'm thinking about is in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Go there with me. This is an amazing promise that hinges on Christ's love. 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So don't come to me and say you're struggling with something nobody else understands. God knows. God understands. God is faithful even in this. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, and this is only applicable to Christians, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The love of God's at work here. The way of escape. The way of escape here comes by looking to the cross where Christ died to pay your sin debt and unite you in his love. And secure God's promises of full salvation with his blood. That's the way of escape when you fall into sin. When you are caught in sin, when you're tempted to sin, you look to Christ. Look what he has done to redeem me from my sins. Hallelujah. I want to dwell at the cross so I'll avoid the sins in my life and the heartache that comes with them. That's what a true Christian does. Don't, yeah, I'm a, this is a Paul washer, right? I'm going to plagiarize. You stand on the shoulders of giants. Don't tell me about your new relationship with Jesus if you don't have a new relationship with sin. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 12. Paul reveals the reason why this key has been given to us. And he does that through another word of exhortation. Look at verse 11 and 12. We are to aspire to live quietly and to mind our own affairs and to work with our hands as we instructed you. So that, there's the purpose clause, You may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He tells us we have been given this key so that we may glorify God's love through our activity. Through our brotherly affection. Church, God designed to save us and leave us here. Sometimes I wonder why. But he tells us why. So that we could be living testimony to the power of Christ's atonement to others. One, it'll cause them to stand before God as guilty, seeing that this is what God can do to set people free. And you're choosing to live in your sins. And two, so that we can lead others who may come to faith in Christ by God's sovereign grace to see the work of Christ's atoning work that transforms clay pots into trophies of grace. God wants the world to see the power of Jesus' love in our closest relationships in particular, in the church. Jesus said this in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this love for one another, the love that reflects the love of God we've received in Christ. By this, all people will know that you are my mathetes, my disciples, my followers, my students. If you have love for one another. Contrary to that, if you do not have love for one another, if you say you are a Christian and you hate your brother, you are not a child of God. End of story. 
But if you are born again, you will display the love of God by the way you interact relationally with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Saints, our our relational sanctification, we need to understand it when we read verses like this, the end of chapter or the end of verse 12 there. Our relational sanctification is primarily meant to glorify God. It's not about us, primarily. Our, Our relational love for one another, our abstaining from sexual immorality is meant to magnify how powerful Jesus' atonement was. He can take those who are trapped and dead in sin, give them life, and then make them like Jesus. That glorifies God who sent him to be our propitiation. But God is too good just to leave us with the hope of his glorification. We have the hope of ours as well in Christ. In the process of sanctification, God is also at work for our good. For our good. And he is glorious in that. God truly wants our joy to be made full relationally. Because... Christ's righteous life and his sacrificial death and his finished work is what promises this to us. It magnifies Jesus. He promises us a perfect love for one another in Christ that will bring God pleasure forever. We should long to glorify Jesus and we should long to love others. And those aren't aren't contrary to each other. Those are fit together because in glory, we're going to be doing this perfectly. And in the process of sanctification, God's showing us, you can't do this on your own. I have to teach you. But if you're born of God and the spirit of God dwells in you and Christ died for you, then you will come to full completion one day. But on your own, you can't do it. He's showing us what we cannot do. Listen, I I would like to say that I aspire to live quietly. I don't ever mouth off and say things I shouldn't. I would like to say I I mind my own affairs, but I get involved with other people at times with things I shouldn't. And I would like to say I work with my hands so that I can just help others. But no, I work selfishly to heap upon myself pleasures. That's what I do in and of my own strength. I can't do these things perfectly. But Jesus did. I can't do this. But God has already accomplished this for us in Christ. It is finished. Christ paid our debt. And he secured us together in his love for eternity. Now in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Saints, God doesn't want our life to reflect anything less than that glorious truth. We have yes and amen from God in Christ. Am I aspiring to do this perfectly? No, but you have a yes and amen in Christ. He did it for you. Am I managing my own affairs like I should or getting busy with other other people's? No, I'm not doing it, but Jesus did it for you. There's yes and amen. You have his blessing in Christ. That's the truth that I really think should produce truly joy-driven sexual and relational sanctification in our hearts as believers. I want to end with prayer here just a second, but I want to say this. I am praying that the revelation of God's love today for us in Christ will be used by you as the key to set you free from the dungeon of sin and pursue sexual and relational sanctification with joy until Christ comes or until he calls you home. Simple text. 
practical instructions, but they're based on a supernatural act of God in verses 9 and 10. This is what keeps us from these things. The love of God constrains us. Where there is no restraint, there is no evidence of God's love in our hearts. Not perfect obedience. We look to Christ's obedience. And we want to follow his example. We want to be conformed to his image now because one day we are promised to be conformed perfectly in glory. Let's pray that we'll be faithful until that day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for you are the giver of all good things. They come from you from above. You've granted us forgiveness. You've granted us a promise of complete sanctification and glory. You've, you've promised to be with us in the work of sanctification on earth because your love is teaching us and guiding us. Your spirit dwells in us. Christ is our spiritual satisfaction in all that we do. We want to magnify him and we thank you for all those desires come from you and not from ourselves. But Lord, let us not drop the ball when it comes to finding this key. When we struggle with these things, let us not stumble around in the darkness of a dungeon trapped without reason. When we have the key of Christ's love within our hearts that will set us free from the bondage to selfishness and sexual sin. You, you want that love to overwhelm us so much so that our satisfaction is found in your love alone. That's what conquers the satisfaction we try to find in the things of this world. And come up wanting. In you, we have the yes and amen of Christ. And in you, we have the hope that his work has completed us in your sight. We thank you for this. Let these truths be the key that sets us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.